0: Welcome to the ministry of First Reformed Church of Aberdeen, South Dakota. Our worship services are at 9 o'clock every Sunday morning. Now we join Pastor Hank Bone as he brings us God's Word. As we enter into Psalm 51, I've been trying to cover uh, entire psalms as I go, but when I came to Psalm 51, I stumbled and struggled. And uh, along with other things going on, I decided that I could only get through the first six verses today, and that at great length. So we will try to cover the rest of it next Lord's Day, but this morning I just want to read the first six verses, and then you can meditate upon the psalms in the course of the week, but the message is going to be focused on that theme, that content of those first six verses. Again, as I mentioned, this is a prayer of repentance by King David, this is following his confrontation by Nathan the prophet after he had sinned with Bathsheba and uh, had orchestrated uh, the death of her husband. And so he writes, "'Have mercy upon me, O God, "'according to your loving kindness, "'according to the multitude of your tender mercies. "'Blot out my transgressions, "'wash me thoroughly from my iniquity, "'and cleanse me from my sin.'" Father, as we, as we approach this passage, we pray that you may give us a clarity of thought in our own minds to see how, in different ways, in many ways, we are David. We are those who are sinners, who are dependent upon the very grace of God through the forgiveness of sins, who need that quickening power of your grace that comes through the working of the Holy Spirit within us. And so we ask, O Father, help us to, to take these words to heart, to see them as those things that drive us ever to your throne of grace. For we ask these things through the blood of our Savior, Jesus Christ, that cleanses us from all sin. Amen. Beloved of the Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord's Day is a symbol, and yet more than a symbol, it is a statement and a remembrance of the death and resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ upon the cross for our sins and for our salvation. But salvation, the need for a Savior, is meaningless if we hide our transgressions, if we bury our fallenness, if we don't recognize our disgrace for the wicked people that we are before a holy God. I've always said, that comparative religion is a very deceitful thing. For us to look at our neighbor and say, well, I'm not as bad as he is, is to misunderstand everything God has revealed to us in his word. You see, brothers and sisters, we don't compare ourselves to one another, but rather we find ourselves in communion together with the same problem, that we are all sinners before a holy and righteous God. If we are to compare ourselves to see how good we are, we must do that before our Creator, that we might understand our uncleanness. Psalm 51 is a model teaching for every one of us to learn how we begin our approach as sinners to a holy God, so that we might be received into his favor. The background of the psalm has reference to a very sad story, that of David's fall. And often when we think of Psalm 51 and we we think of, of David's fall with Bathsheba and the whole episode of how he orchestrates, tries to hide and cover up his adultery, how he he then sends Uriah off to have Uriah killed so that they could still maybe put their story forward that uh, it was Uriah that had gotten Bathsheba pregnant. As we see that whole story, we often think, oh, that that David! how could he do that? What a horrible thing that he could do. I'd never do anything like that. How often have... How often have we thought in those kinds of ways? I would never do that. But though he fell, he was not utterly cast down, for God graciously upheld him and restored him. And that's, that's really the force of this story, isn't it? It's that it's even David, a man after God's own heart, a man with like passions like you and me, that he could find himself ensnared in such a horrendous and horrible sin. And our response should not be one of looking critically at David, but of recognizing that in our own hearts, there I would go but for the grace of God. But another and even more important lesson from Psalm 51 is that when I fall, and when I sense my misery, and when I see myself as unworthy of coming before God, and I'm filled with the fear of the Lord, God's grace brings restoration. Psalm 51 drives us to our knees that we might embrace God's grace. The sin which in this psalm he laments was the folly and wickedness he committed with his neighbor's wife. A sin not to be spoken of nor thought of without great shame. His sin with Bathsheba was the inlet to numerous other sins that followed. It was like a a break in the dam that sent forth a mighty rush of water. This sin of David is recorded has a warning to all of us that, that he who thinks he stands must take heed lest he fall. The repentance, which in this psalm he expresses, he was brought to by the ministry of the prophet Nathan, who was sent by God to confront him with his sin. King David had continued for nine months to hide his sin, to deny any wrongdoing, There were no expressions of remorse and sorrow for the wickedness he had wrought. But while God may allow his people to fall into sin and even to live in a, a denial of their sin for a long time, yet he will by some means or other bring those that belong to him to repentance, bring them to himself and to their right mind again, That's his promise. That's our hope. Herein, generally, God uses the ministry of the word which before Nathan was sent to speak. David had not been confronted with his disgrace. He sat not under the word. From this lesson, you should learn that that when you have been overtaken by any fault, you should view a faithful reproof as the greatest kindness that can be done for you and a wise reprover, your best friend. David, being confronted with his sin, pours out his soul to God in prayer for mercy and grace. But then where should backsliding children go when their guilt becomes too much to bear? They must return to the Lord their God, for whom from whom they have backslidden and who alone can heal their backslidings. We're no different. No different than Adam and Eve, who when they had sinned thought they could cover their shame and hide their sin. But the cost was that they withdrew themselves from God. So for the redeemed who sin, they must withdraw from God or repent. It's one or the other. There is no middle ground, it is confession, not denial that releases the soul. David was brought to his knees by, and by divine inspiration, he brought forth this psalm that it might be often repeated and long after reviewed, and this he committed to the chief musician to be sung in the public service of the church. How often we seek to shield our shame from one another. But look to David. David said, My shame is an open book. If I am truly to repent, my shame must be before the people of God that they might learn likewise, that when they fall, it is but consistent with their own image. As a profession of his repentance... By this psalm, he was making publicly known his actions, his sin having been notorious, his disgrace no longer hidden, that his repentance might be as wide as the wound he had inflicted. Those who truly repent of their sins will not be ashamed to own their repentance, but will rather seek the honor of those who understand forgiveness. This psalm is a pattern to others. Both to bring them to repentance by his example and to instruct them in their repentance what to do and what to say. As we get into the psalm next week, you're going to see that, that David's motive here is evangelistic. Why is he airing his laundry in public? His motive is evangelistic. Being Converted himself, the one who has fallen, will, like Peter, after he denied the Lord, strengthen the brethren. And for this cause, the Apostle Paul said, he obtained mercy even after he had persecuted the church. As the psalm unfolds, the first thing that we hear is David's humble petition in the verses 1 and 2. His prayer is is very similar to the one that our Savior assigned as the words of the penitent sinner. God, be merciful to me, a sinner. David was upon many accounts a man of great merit. He had not only done much, but suffered much in the cause of God. And yet, when he was convinced of his sin, he does not offer to balance his evil deeds with his good deeds nor can he think that his service will atone for his offenses. But he he flies to God's infinite mercy and depends upon that only for pardon and peace. Have mercy upon me, O God, he cried out. He sees himself as obnoxious to God's justice and therefore casts himself upon God's mercy. And it is certain that the best man in the world will be undone if God is not merciful to him. Beloved, when was the last time you saw yourself and understood in a particular way that you're obnoxious to God, and yet God receives you? Think for a moment about David's plea for mercy. Have mercy upon me, O God not according to the dignity of my birth as descended from the prince of the tribe of Judah, not according to my public services as Israel's champion or my public honors as Israel's king. His plea is not, Lord, remember me, David, and all my afflictions, how I vowed to build a place for the ark. A true penitent will make No mention of anything but have mercy upon me for mercy's sake. I have nothing to plead before you but the freeness of your mercy, according to your loving kindness, your clemency, the goodness of your nature, which inclines you to pity the miserable. David yearns for a sense of God's grace. He pleads to God according to the fullness of God's mercy. There are in you, O Lord, not only loving kindness and tender mercies, but an infinite abundance of them, a multitude of tender mercies for the forgiveness of many sinners, of many sins, to multiply pardons as we multiply transgressions. What is the the particular mercy that David begs for? It is the pardon of sin, Blot out my transgressions, he says, as a debt is blotted or crossed out of the book when either the debtor has paid it or the creditor has written it off. Wipe out my transgressions that they may not appear and demand judgment against me, not stare me in the face to my confusion and terror. For nine months, David thought he had hidden this sin. But for nine months, they were a terror to his soul. Have you ever found yourself there? Where you know you are ensnared in a sin, and you know you want to be freed from it, but you think that it's just you who knows it, that you've kept it hidden. But what's the expression? It's eating you alive. Here we see God's grace in its fullest benefit. The blood of Christ sprinkled upon the conscience to purify and pacify it. Blot out the transgression. And having reconciled us to God, restores us to that right relationship. Verse 2 says, Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity. Wash my soul from the guilt and stain of my sin by your mercy and grace. Sin defiles you renders you loathsome in the sight of a holy God and uneasy to yourself. It rips you from your communion with God in grace or glory. When God pardons sin, he cleanses you from it so that you become acceptable to him. Your soul is restored and you have access to God. Nathan had assured David upon his first profession of repentance, that his sin was pardoned. The Lord has taken away your sin. You shall not die, Nathan says in 2 Samuel twelve thirteen. And yet David prayed, Wash me thoroughly, cleanse me from my sin, blot out my transgressions. For God must be vigorously pursued for that which he has promised. And those whose sins are pardoned must pray that that pardon may be more and more clear to them. God had forgiven him, but he could not forgive himself. And therefore, he is thus insistent for the pardon he desires and the sense of that pardon as one that thought himself unworthy of it and knew how much to value it. Secondly, we see David's penitential confessions in the verses 3 through 5. David was brought through conviction of his conscience, to own his guilt before God. He he understood that he had disgraced himself. He cried out, I acknowledge my transgressions. David understood that this was the only way of easing his conscience. Nathan said, you are the man, David. Remember the story? The farmer that had the one little lamb and the large landowner that had the flocks but he took the one man's lamb to entertain a friend. And David's outraged. That man should be put to death. And David had it right. And Nathan said, you are the man, David. David was ready to hear that. For the months and months of seeking to hide his sin. That moment broke the hardness of the soil. And David responded, I have sinned. He had such a deep sense of it that he was continually thinking of it with sorrow and shame. His contrition for his sin was not slight, sudden passion, but an abiding grief. My sin is always before me to humble me. And mortify me and make me continually blush and tremble. It is ever against me. I see it before me as an enemy, accusing and threatening me. David was upon all occasions reminded of his sin and was willing to be so for the, his further humility. He never walked on the roof of his house without a penitent reflection on his unhappy walk there. When he saw Bathsheba, he never lay down to sleep without a sorrowful thought of the bed of his uncleanness, never sat down to meet, never sent his servant on an errand or took his pen to hand, but to remember the treacherous message that he sent with Uriah as he returned to the war and the fatal warrant David wrote and signed for Uriah's execution. In the process of repentance, Even for the same sin, you must often be reminded there is power in having your sins ever before you. That by the remembrance of your past sins, you may be kept humble, may be armed against temptation, quickened to duty, and made patient under the cross. David's confession confesses his actual transgression in verse 4. He says, against you and you only have I sinned. David was a very great man in the world's eyes and yet having done wrong submits to the discipline of a penitent and does not try to use his royal dignity to excuse him from it. Rich and poor must Always meet here together. There is one law of repentance for both. The greatest must be judged shortly and therefore must judge themselves now. David was a very good man and yet having sinned, he willingly accommodated himself to the place and posture of a disgraced man. The best men, if they sin, should give the best example of repentance. His confession is particular. I have done this evil, this that I am now reproved for, this that my conscience now convicts me of. Note it, it is good to be particular in the confession of sin, that we may be the more expressive in praying for pardon and so may have more comfort in it. It is important to reflect upon your particular sins and the circumstances of your sins so that God's grace becomes even more precious to your soul. David grieves over the sin that he confesses and lays a load upon himself for it against you. And in your sight Jesus appears to borrow this confession in the words of the returning prodigal in Luke 15:18. I have sinned against heaven and before you. Two things David laments in his sin. First, that it was committed against God. To God, the affront is given, and God is the party wronged. It is God's truth that we deny by willful sin, His conduct that we despise, His command that we disobey, His promise that we distrust, His name that we dishonor. And it is with Him. That we deal deceitfully and disingenuously. What a contrast is seen between Joseph fleeing sin when tempted by Potiphar's wife in Genesis thirty nine nine, and David's great aggravation from his failure against you only. Some want to say that David's words reflect his high position as king, that he was not accountable to. Any but God. But it is more agreeable to his present temper to suppose that it expresses the deep contrition of his soul for his sin. That he as king is the last thing on his mind at this moment. But that he is a sinner before a just and holy God. That is what captivates his mind. And that his remorse was upon right grounds. He here sinned against Bathsheba and Uriah, against his own soul and body and family, against his kingdom and against his church, against the church of God. And all this helped to humble him. But but none of those were sinned against in the same way that God was. And therefore, this he understands in the greatest reason for sorrow. Against you only have I sinned. Secondly, David acknowledged that he had done this evil in God's sight. That I know that God sees, stands as a testimony against me and renders it exceedingly sinful. This should greatly humble us for all our sins that they have been committed under the eye of God. Which argues either a disbelief of God's omniscience, his all-knowingness, or a contempt of his justice. David justified God in the sentence passed upon him that the sword should never depart from his house. He owns his sin and embraces the disgrace of it. Not only that he might obtain the pardon of it himself, but that by his confession, he might give honor to God. First, that God might be justified in the threatenings he had spoken by Nathan. Lord, I have nothing to say against the justice of what you declare. I deserve what is threatened and a thousand times worse. Secondly, that God might be clear when he judged, that is, when he executed those threatenings. David published his confession of sin that when hereafter he should come into trouble, none might say God had done him wrong. For he owns the Lord is righteous, and thus all true penitents justify God by condemning themselves. You are just in all that is brought upon me. The consequences are, for my actions, well deserved. He confesses his original corruption in verse 5. He says, behold, I was brought forth in iniquity. He does not call upon God to behold this truth, but, but reminds himself. Come, my soul, look unto the rock out of which I was cut, and you will find I was conceived in iniquity. Had I duly considered my fallen nature before, perhaps I would not have been so bold with the temptation, nor have ventured among the sparks with such tender in my heart. And so the sin might have been avoided, might have been prevented. Let me consider it now, not to excuse or extenuate the sin, Lord, I did so. But indeed, I could not help it. My inclination led me to it, but let me consider it rather as an Aggravation of the sin. Lord, I have not only been guilty of adultery and murder, but I have an adulterous, murderous nature. Therefore, I abhor myself. It's recognizing who we are that we might seek to flee from it. David elsewhere speaks of the admirable structure of his body in Psalm 139. It was curiously wrought, he says, and yet here he says it was brought forth in iniquity. Sin was twisted in with it, not as it came out of God's hands, but as it it comes through our parents' fallen nature. He elsewhere speaks of the piety of his mother, that she was God's handmaid, and he pleads his relation to her. And yet, here, he said, she conceived him in sin. For though she was, by grace, a child of God, she was, by nature, a daughter of Eve, and as such, not exempted from the fallen character. One of the hardest things... For us to truly believe is that we are brought into this world with a corrupt nature, wretchedly degenerated from its original purity. We have from our birth the snares of sin in our bodies, the seeds of sin in our souls, and the stain of sin upon both. This is what we call original sin because it is, the ancient, it is as ancient as that first sin and because it is the original sin of all actual sins, all actual transgressions. This is that foolishness which is bound in the heart of a child, that proneness of evil and backwardness to the good which is a burden to the heart of a child that proneness of evil and backwardness to good, which is the burden of the regenerate and the ruin of the unregenerate. It is the bent of the person, of all individuals, to backslide from God. This, however, is essential for you to truly believe so that you might have your hope directed away from yourself, as the determiner of your destiny, to to the God who calls you in his grace. Thirdly, then, David's plea for grace in verse 6 is seen. Behold, you desire truth in the inward parts, both God's good will towards you, seen in his desire for his truth to be in your inward parts and to have you honest and sincere and true to your profession, along with his good work in you. In the hidden part, you will make me to know wisdom, he says. Truth and wisdom go hand in hand in making a man a good man. A clear head and a sound heart, prudence and sincerity reveal the man of God perfected. Wisdom is nothing short of truth that is put into action in thoughts, in words, in deeds. And what God requires of you, he works in you and he works it through the enlightening of your mind and the changing of your will. But how does this come here? God is hereby justified and cleared. Lord, you were not the author of my sin. There is no blame to be laid upon you, but I alone must bear it. For you have often admonished me to be sincere and have made me to know that which if I had duly it would have prevented my falling into sin. Had I taken seriously the grace you have given me, I should have kept the integrity you poured out upon me. One of the things that we see very clearly, especially as pastor, when someone comes in for counseling, and they say, I, I'm doing this, and in, in this, this sin, I'm doing this, and I say, Every pastor says, and you know it's wrong, don't you? Yes, I know it's wrong. We know what is right to do, but it is that propensity that we seek, the propensity of sin that we seek to overcome. When truth is set aside, sin becomes seductive. Lord, you desire truth, but where was it when I plotted against Uriah? You have made me to know wisdom, but I have not lived up to what I have known. David, through this, is hereby encouraged in his repentance to hope that God would graciously accept him. He hoped that God would enable him to make good his resolutions, that in the hidden part, in the new man, which is called the hidden man of the heart in 1 Peter 3, 4, he would make him know wisdom, to discern and avoid the designs of the tempter another time. Some read it as a prayer. Lord, in this instance, I have done foolishly for the future, make me to know wisdom. Well, where there is truth sought, God will give wisdom. And where one pursues their godly duty, the Lord will bring strength to stand in righteousness. In the story of David, you are vividly confronted with your own reality. Maybe you've never committed adultery or plotted and carried out someone's death. I hope not. Maybe you've thought about it. But you have sinned, even though you know, at least intellectually, that God sees your actions. The first step toward a true and lively faith is the great confession of your sin and the willingness to live consciously in the realization that you're a sinner. Inclined to sin... In need of the power of God's forgiving love to change and transform your life to a godly walk. Every one of us here today know that. Down here. Even as God's word came to David through the prophet Nathan. Not only to confront him in his sin, but even more to call him to repentance and trust in the grace of God for the forgiveness. So God's word comes to you this day to call you to flee from your sin because the grace of God that brings forgiveness and restoration through faith in Jesus Christ is your only comfort in life and in death. Amen.